This week, we're recording in a temple, but we still might swear because it's like really tempting because we're on stage in a temple. So be warned. This is your obscenity warning. Who knows? Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Can you imagine Trump playing naked tag in Auschwitz? (laughs) Or Pog. Pog. Now it's in Germany. And it's not a Guten Tag. Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, coming to you live tonight from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where we are thrilled to be hosted for this live show by Congregation Rodef Shalom. Did I say that right? Rodef Shalom? We are Congregation Rodef Shalom. All right. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Deputy Editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. And Tablet Senior Writer, Liel Leibowitz. Alan Wasahalan. Our Jew of the Week is author Mark Bittman, and our Gentile of the Week is podcast host Kristen Meinzer, whose podcast is By the Book, a podcast about self-help books. We're excited to have them. We're excited to be at Road of Sholem, and we're excited to, I don't know, to catch up. with The three of us haven't, we don't see each other. I don't see these guys all week. So this is like my chance to say, what's happening? Stephanie, what's happening? Well, first of all, I feel like we almost were not here tonight. I got extreme. I had I had subway trauma. I feel like who here got I'm delayed sorry. on the way here? What's a subway? <laughs> Liel, Liel does not take public transportation. He, he he has this thing called Uber. It's like my car with other people. <laughs> but I feel That's like weird. can we can we cheer for the subway like delays tonight? Who was affected? I had a traumatic subway experience, and I need to tell everyone about it. She did. We met. Stephanie was late for our pre meeting, and she walked in 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 a tizzy. I would say it's an it was an actual tizzy. I was on the, the B train just trying to get up to the Upper West Side, like a, you know, like one does. And we had just passed West 4th, and all of a sudden the, the train stops. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then they're like, so someone pulled the emergency brake, so we're going to like be here for a little bit. And so then all of a sudden, I'm in the second to last train car. Sorry, this is like a therapy session for me. I need, I'm on the Upper West Side. It just feels natural um, to just tell you all my thoughts and feelings and then pay you after for We have 19 for, analysts for in the room hour. at this moment. Um, 45 minutes, go. So basically, all of a sudden, people from the car, in, so we're the second to last car in, on the train. We're underground. We're in between stations. People from the car in front of us start running into our car. And I'm just like, Oh my God. So I start running because I'm apparently that person who just panics along with other people. And people are like, there's smoke, there's gas. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is the scariest thing that's ever happened. So we all run into the back train car and there's like a thousand people at this point in the back train car. And what happened was that someone had opened their bag and there was like gas and smoke coming out of their, their, their backpack. But what it, I'll, I'll spare you the, like the really stressful part. It was someone's laptop that, so I think it was like not a non, it wasn't like a terrorist thing. It was just like a sort of an accident, but something really, really messed up. Their laptop was smoking. Yes. It's a smoldering laptop. But like enough that it's, it filled the car. I don't know. And so there were these two women, these Orthodox Jewish women that like led the charge. And one woman was like, my husband died when I was two months pregnant and I have a five month old at home. I need my, she needs her mother. And it was like, and I was like, oh my God, like I'm on a train car. There's this Orthodox woman and she's talking about her. And I'm like, is this, like, this she is needs a- her mother to sit down and <laughs> calm down. No, I was just like, oh my God, this is for, I was like, first of all, this is weirdly targeted towards me. And like, all, so then there, and then, so I was sitting there trying to make this woman feel better. But I was also like, I'm terrified too. Cause I haven't had, I know this happens a lot. Like, and it kind of felt like in that moment where you actually don't know if something's really wrong and they're like the gas. And then finally they're like, guys, it's a laptop. But it was probably like a 10 minute thing. But I had all of these emotions of like, be a helper, be terrified. Think about like, can you walk on the tracks in your clogs? Like I had all of these thoughts. <laughs> and then also being like, am I going to miss the show? 
So anyway, what I'm trying to say is if you guys were delayed on the subway, my experience was She worse. feels you. She feels you. I'm still like sweating. I'm still like a little like jittery. What's new with you, Leo? Yeah, Leo, what's up? Very quiet. Where would I have traumatic experiences? You, do, I mean, you avoid <laughs> mass transit. That's right. I stay home. <sighs> You stay home and drink. Nothing bad ever happens. Nothing bad ever happens to you. Uh, little news of the Jews. I have in my notes, though I've stopped caring in the three days since we made this list, that that comedian Jenny Slate is back with Chris Evans. Yeah, that is huge oh. news. Yes! <laughs> I've completely stopped caring in the time since I wrote that. Jenny Slate I remember from Saturday Night Live. OMG. No, Jenny Slate is an amazing I know comedian. she's done other stuff. She was in some indie movie. She produces and, and stars in indie movies. She's really, really amazing. Is Chris Evans She's the guy Chris from Parks Evans. and Recreation? No, that's Chris Pratt. He just divorced oh, Anna Faris. Chris, Chris, Chris Evans, Evans is the lesser Chris. The lesser Chris. The lesser the big meaty no, he's, Chris. No, he's better than Chris Pine. There's Chris Pratt, Chris Pine. Anyway, Jenny Slate is back Chris with Chris Evans. Evans. He's a superhero. Is he an Avenger? Captain America. He's Captain America, anyway. <laughs> she... It's it, uh, like is, I don't, is it bottom line good for the Jews or not good for the Jews? Jenny Slate with Chris I'm, Evans. I, you know, if Jenny Slate is happy, I'm happy, and I think we're all the Jews should be happy. But they've broken up before. But they're back together. Who cares? Yeah. We're happy. We take whatever we can whoever get. Whoever they this, are in, I, in 2017. Whoever they are, give it. always struck me as a slightly less annoying Sarah Silverman. Oh like, my I don't god, hate I will, her quite as I will much. fight you. It's not quite as bad. I will fight you on Jenny Slate. Like, I will fight you on Jenny Slate. She is smart and funny and amazing. I will. I survived what? like a very serious experience tonight. <laughs> no I don't disagree. Not, with it's not the day. I don't want to say I'm a survivor, but like I definitely did survive something. <laughs> you um, your grandparents. I know just how you feel. The trains, the gas. You know, I've been there. My grandparents are today. dead. Well, sorry. <laughs> Liel, um, this one's for you. If Jenny Slay was for Stephanie, this one's for you. Uh, Gal Gadot was apparently on Long Island this weekend <laughs> or last week. What, what's that? What's she's up with everywhere. that? She's everywhere. Yeah, she's omnipresent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a, a column in Tablet Magazine called This Week in Gal Gadot. It's one of our more popular weekly features. Twig. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, this, this week uh, she was here, there, and everywhere. One place she was not present, however, is Ramallah where the Justice League movie was banned, not by the theater owners, but by the audience who protested outside of the theaters demanding not to see the Justice League. And in that, they're actually a lot like us. Because there were a lot of people in America being like, we really don't want to see a Justice League movie with Ben Affleck as Batman. Was, it, was there issue so that we, Gal Gadot is Israeli? Uh, indeed. And according to our Lebanese friends, a Mossad, a spy. A Mossad agent. A Mossad agent. That's right. Um, while, we're, while we're across the pond, uh, gold-plated Sufgan Yot. Uh, I read this story. Apparently, um, according to Israel's Channel 2, superstar chef Dudu Odzman. <laughs> we- Can we take a moment here, by the way? <laughs> There's some Israeli names that are like the absolute fucking best things in the world. Doo-doo. Doo-doo. Why is everyone named Doodoo? Or Doody. Nimrod and Moron. Like, those are the best names. Like, why don't we name kids like, hey, Doodoo and Nimrod, Moron, come well, here. Like, well, these are great names. I feel like we could, these could be like the next like Park Slope kids' right? names. Yeah. <laughs> I have like, a Nimrod story. So, so Nimrod at least. I bet you do. I, Nimrod is, you know, is Torah. I forget who Nimrod is. And is Nimrod a giant? Nimrod is a giant. Is a giant, he's right? A Canaanite so enemy. I think I've told this story before because once every couple of years I have to bust out my Nimrod story. Um, when and this is this is only interesting you if someone. You have to be careful when you're doing that now. This is only interesting if someone in the audience, and I mean the greater podcast audience, audience knows this guy. When I was coming of age in in going to high school in Greater Hartford, I'm from Springfield, but my high school was a few miles away in Greater Hartford. Um, th- there was this legendary, good-looking. Playa, you know, if you're feeling nerdy and the girl you like won't like you, and you ask her to the dance, but she says she's going with someone already, and if you were rejected, if you were shot down, you know, fiction, fiction, 
The odds were that that night you discovered that she was at a party at Nimrod Weiselfish's house. Wait, what does that mean? This Nimrod Weiselfish. This is a real human being. The hot girl you wanted was dating Nimrod. The party that, when, you, when nobody showed up at your party, it's because everyone's at Nimrod's house. Like, Can I tell you? If, Nimrod Weiselfish is like working in a Verizon store. No. Right now. No, no, no. There's no other way. No, no, no. If, if not, only. there's no justice. If only, right? It's no Justice so I, League. I Googled him a couple years ago. Oh, and, by no. the way, Nimrod Weiselfish, Nimrod Weiselfish deserved all, he was so beautiful. He was, he was like, he was a gorgeous hunk of Jewish, Israeli, immigrant, Galut sold. He was perfect. And you saw him and you felt you were 16. He looked 30, full beard, <laughs> pecs. Like I mean, I chest met, hair, shirt chest open. Chest hair, yeah. you know. I met the guy once, and right? He also talk, like, so I Googled him a few years ago and hello, he was I like, was it like late at night when you're like, hmm, totally. what's going on with me? Well, like, Who else? Who right. up to? The late night Googling. I am Nimrod. I can make a woman of you like this. That... That was Nimrod Weiselfish. So it turns out, I Googled him, and my hope was, you know, that he's he's making the fries somewhere, right? My hope is that- Why? You know- Also, I, no chance he is. Because I'm- justice. Because I'm petty. That's he's why. He's making the fries at his, like, startup that, like, right. optimized no. fry making. That's right. That's It turns out he sold five startups, and he's surfing in the South Pacific somewhere. Oh. He's like, there's like, it's some travel magazine that has followed, like, early early life billionaire following his surf passion around the world, Nimrod Weiselfish. So someone out there uh, is Nimrod Weiselfish or knows Nimrod Weiselfish, yeah. can you please tell him to go fuck himself? No, <laughs> we have actually, absolutely no is, sympathy. can I come to his next party? You totally want to his next party. What I really want is for him to be a guest on the podcast. I mean, I really, it's time for, for him and because me to. I have to say, I mean, we obviously need to move on from this topic, but like, to, he's really like leaning into the name before yeah. we were leaning into things. And plus, Do, I would say probably like most Israeli males, he's probably bold. You have that. Maybe he is him? now. No? I mean, maybe he is now. No, but he, at least he's like really tan, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, back then he had. Also, all the surfing. He had a head of Adrian Zmed curls. <laughs> so he was Zohan. Is a what couple you're more points of news of the Jews. Um, Let's see. I have in my notes Jesus butt note. That's right. What is the Jesus? Yeah, walk the butt? us walk us through this one. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, I believe, 13th century, a beautiful statue of Jesus discovered, I think, in Spain, uh, in whose butt there was a mysterious note that have gone unnoticed for nine centuries. That's kind of amazing. Who would put a note up Jesus's butt? It's like something out of a Tarantino movie. And I imagine that that note read, this is what you get for trying to reform Judaism. <laughs> Too soon? Too yeah. soon. Wrong crowd. They probably Wait, said, call your mother. Right. Is it Do- like leaving a note in the Western Wall? Like, what is that? I think they thought it was the Western Wall. It's very gangster, though. They said, you want to leave a note in a certain crack? Hey, Jesus, come here. We're only going to talk to you. <laughs> I left you a note in a Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. 
As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We would like to welcome some newsletter subscribers. This week, we welcome to the Tablet Newsletter the law firm of Jordana Schmier, Saul Morris, Eric Mikakovsky, John Hicks, who is the younger brother of my old buddy Basil Hicks from Arkansas. I mean, if we're reaching Arkansas Presbyterians now living in Los Angeles, I feel like we're truly going to bring world peace. But if this we're is not amazing. reaching Basil, there's something wrong. We're probably reaching his older brother, Basil Virgil Hicks III, whose grandpappy was a Presbyterian minister. Like, we are reaching the Gentiles. We'd like to welcome Ruby Barrett from Salt Lake City, Utah Besties. Miranda Hilliard and Lauren Benson, Michael Waller, Daniel Bethelme, and Hal2002, who didn't give us his real name or her real name, but is online. Open the pod bay doors. At Hal2002. So the question is Eric Mikakovsky. What do we know about Eric Mikakovsky, aside from the fact that he's a newsletter subscriber? Is it Mikikovsky? How is it spelled? M I G I C O V S K Y. See, that's Magikovsky. And? The, The family was originally the proprietors of the Magic Kingdom, before Mr. Mijakovsky's partner, one goy by the name of Disney, just completely <laughs> took it away from us. It was the Mijakovsky Kingdom. It was a wonderful place. There was a butcher, there was a baker, there was a rabbi. It was and great. they were so ashamed at the bad business deal that allowed it to be taken away. They, take it. they took it away from us. That they changed their it last name. It was the most beautiful shtetl in the world, and they turned it into this... Eric Mikakovsky, we're sorry. We're sorry for what happened to your family. The newsletter, by the way, which you people have figured out how to sign up for, is not the regular tablet newsletter. It is not. It is not. To get our newsletter, you want to sign up on the bottom of one of our show pages. So go to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. Click on one of our our show pages and sign up. Or send an email asking for the newsletter to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and put in the subject line something that clues us in, like newsletter. While you're at it, you may want to rate us on iTunes, which helps bump us up in the algorithm. I don't know what an algorithm is, but we want to get bumped up in it. And you want to join our Facebook group, which now has over 1,200 members and lately has been the site of debates about aluminum foil and whether Jews prefer it to Ziploc bags. Go to Tablet's Facebook page, click on groups and join the unorthodox group. There's never been a better time to introduce our Jew of the Week, uh, Mark Bittman. He's an author and cookbook writer. He is everywhere. You all know him. You're all obviously here to see him. You all are related to him in some way. And this is exciting because this is the 10th anniversary of How to Cook Everything Vegetarian. And there's a brand new 10th anniversary edition that's just been published, and you guys can get it after. And we're so excited to have Mark Bittman with us. know you as a food writer, but in recent years, you've sort of become a food crusader. You've talked about eating less meat. You've talked about ethics in, in, in the way we grow our food and thinking more about that. Like, What is your number one concern right now? Like, What, are, what should we be most panicked about? I want to get right into it. Climate change. Well, that's... That's the answer. <laughs> and what? Well, I mean, and how to elaborate is, like is that the idea? The most depressing thing anyone. I mean, how does that? Aff- how does climate change affect our food? Like, you do a really nice thing where you make. It's really make not everything. how climate change affects our food. It's how our agriculture affects climate change. That's the big question. So it's arguable that as um, many greenhouse gases are generated by agriculture as they are by any other sector. How did you? What turned you on the? What made you think? Holy cow! This is. This is important enough that I really want to start taking a more public position and make it a bigger part of my work. You know, through the through the 80s and 90s, I lived in New Haven and I um, 
I really saw Connecticut, all these family farms get turned into subdivisions. And this was a period during which Americans became obese. And there's a reason Americans became obese. And it's not because everybody lost their mind at the same time. It's because 25% more calories were available to us. Most of that was in the form of sugar and hyper-processed foods. And you could see that happening. And I was writing about food, a little bit about nutrition, mostly about cooking. And then in 2007, a report came out by the FAO, which is the Agricultural Organization of the UN, that was called Livestock's Long Shadow, and it was about greenhouse generation by industrially produced meat. For me, that was that was just kind of a turning point. I thought, well, I need to be writing. No one's writing about this stuff, and no one was. And here we are uh, in, in a country where fast food restaurants have meat sandwiches nestled between two pieces of meat. Do, do you ever... Do you ever despair? Like, do you ever walk around and be like, it's doomed, there's no chance, we're lost? And do you ever go into those fast foods? Yeah. When's the last time you've been to McDonald's? Follow-up question. What do you think of President Trump's diet? <laughs> you know, I had friends email me yesterday saying, this is, this is another one of these cagey strategies by Trump. This is directed at us to say, oh, well, the effetes don't eat McDonald's. So on principle, I do eat McDonald's because, you know, I don't want to be an effete. Um, <laughs> I do despair, but um, I think any crusader for social justice, let's say, or anyone who cares about the state of the world has bad days because obviously things are not going great. Um, there was a guy, can you remember his name? There's an English academic I knew for a little while. He wrote a book about how things actually were going great. That, you know, this was the time of greatest peace in the world. Many fewer people die of infectious diseases than ever did before. The general standard of living is higher than it's ever been. Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it just, that's just, that's sort of a contrary way of looking at things. Chronic diseases kill more people than ever before. There's still a billion people starving. And now there's two billion people malnourished through obesity, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Is enough war. So you're like <laughs> super fun to have at parties, right? <laughs> I you know, actually, I realized just yesterday that I hate parties. <laughs> so probably not. And you know what else? No one wants to talk to me. So I'm giving up, giving off some kind of vibe. <laughs> Why don't they want like, to talk to you? Stay away. I, I just. I've, okay, speaking of I things you hate. I just want to go home. I like. Let's, I want to go. Let's keep talking home. about just things you hate. Home. What is the most annoying food trend? Is it like the rainbow bagel, avocado toast? What is it that you see that you're just like, what is How wrong with people? How could avocado toast be annoying? Just like, I, you know, that's a, let's either let's either just be funny or be serious because that's it's, that's not a it's not a question. What is? You tell me what the most annoying food trend is. Oh, I think brunch is annoying. I think I find brunch is overpriced, and I think it's like the worst of the food from restaurants. But I, don't I think know I that feel that's a trend. I mean, they were doing brunch when I was a kid. Well, how about I the... think restaurants are annoying, but so what? It's not. It doesn't mean any. I find many things annoying. Right. To, to, to speak seriously, though, I think you're right. I think restaurants would be the the. the oh no! Worst. Restaurants totally they're suck. They're no, absolutely terrible, terrible, and they've taken this kind of you know iconic. Uh, you know, pornographic place in our culture where we take them so, so seriously and these great big chefs and, and you know, the economy that goes into it. What, how have we gotten here? How have we gotten to this, you know, obsessive place? Well, I think um, 
there's three things about restaurants, three costs. There's real estate, and that we can include insurance and stuff. In real estate, there's labor, and there's food costs. So if real estate's really expensive, which might be the case here, um, <laughs> then you have to, if you want to make money, you have to skimp on either food or labor. So the rule of most restaurants, the absolute rule of most restaurants is to spend as little money as possible on ingredients and as little money as possible on workers. So how can that possibly be a good thing? So here's, I, I can't remember your last question, which I was sort of okay with, but I want to say one other thing. <laughs> There's going to be, not everybody's going to keep making money in restaurants and a third of them are going to close and then they'll be better again, I think. Is, serious question, is, is the removal of tip, or, or making tipping included, is that something, is that a good sign towards trying to change the model of, that we see? I, I think it is a good sign. I think it's, it's brave of the restaurateurs who are doing it. I think it's really difficult, and I think it's still unbalanced because um, servers, it's, it's kind of odd, but servers, generally speaking, still make more money than people in the kitchen. So I'm not saying servers don't deserve to make money. I'm saying everybody deserves to make money. And the people in the kitchen who, you know, as we know, are largely Latin Americans um, are making the worst money in the restaurant business. So um, the servers who tend more to be Anglos are making better money. Is it possible for you to find joy in food anymore? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I, food is awesome. I, you know, I, I still totally love cooking, and every night that I don't have a commitment, I'm home cooking. Do you have a Madeleine? Do you have like this one dish you mean, thing that you eat and just like brings back this childlike, simplistic joy? Well, if I could find a good hot dog, it would be that. But <laughs> Schwartzberg's closed 50 years ago, and there hasn't been a good deli since, so... So your new book is actually a reissue of how to... Cook. Speaking of hot dogs, let's talk about yeah, let's the talk vegetarian about how to cook book. Everything yeah. vegetarian. It's the 10th anniversary, and it's a pretty different time to be reissuing. I mean, when you came out with that book, vegetarianism wasn't like this thing that everyone talked about. My family's vegetarian. It's so great. What, what's the biggest... Like, is it strange to realize 10 years has gone by and the, the, uh, everyone's attitudes about vegetarianism have just changed so much? Wait, can I... I just want to say, because this goes to the question I was going to ask, I feel like there's been a rollback, which is that 10, 20 years ago, I felt like more people, if you were conscious about food, it meant maybe you went vegetarian. Then the foodie revolution took over and people all of a sudden thought that it was somehow progressive or interesting or ethical to eat meat as long as you stared it in the eye first or as long as it was massaged meat. or it's like that. I feel like there's been this rollback where now the the th the hipster thing to be is a conscious meat eater and vegetarianism's having harder times and but but statistically there are more vegetarians good than there I'll were. stop worrying about it but um but I mean you're you're right also it it's not the hipster thing to do but it's more mainstream and you know I've never advocated for vegetarianism the first line of the book is probably something like I'm not a vegetarian and I don't think you should be one either. But um, it, it goes back to your first question. 10, 15 years ago, the writing, I saw the writing on the wall and the writing on the wall was, is that we're all going to be eating more plants and less of everything else. I mean, if we want to survive. So um, I didn't 
right how to cook everything vegetarian in the first place to channel my inner vegetarian because there isn't one or because I thought people should be vegetarians because I don't. I just thought we should be more familiar with foods from the plant kingdom. And that was right. And I, and yet I made enough mistakes and enough things have changed and enough time has gone by so that I thought it was worth redoing. I mean, this is not a rewrite. It's a, it's a you know, it's a pretty complete revision and it's really different. So why shouldn't people be vegetarian? I think people should eat less meat and I think um, people should eat less dairy also. And I think it's much, it's a much stronger argument to say um, we should all eat 10% less meat. We should really all eat 90% less meat and, and less dairy than it is to say we should all eat none because no one's going to do that. Are, th- are there any recipes? Because I, I do use your recipes on the, the New York Times cooking app, which is a great app. Are there any recipes on there where you're sort of like, ooh, you know, I actually disagree. Like I wrote that this many years ago. I wish people would stop making it. Well, things get better and things do change. Um, some things are as good as they were when I wrote them and some things I do differently now and I think I do better now. Maybe some things I do worse now because I hardly ever follow my recipes. So, um yeah, I don't know. It's someone counted the recipes I've written a couple of years ago, and it was something like twenty-two thousand. So it's like I just have no idea. I just don't know anything. And, and yet, this is like one of it's like if I were you, any time I would invite people over for dinner, I'd be terrified because I would feel like so like I'd feel the need to be Mark Whitman and perform great. Like, do you feel that, or do people just come over and be like, "Here's you know a salad." He like makes them Lego waffles just to mess with their minds. I mean, you just defrost something. These kinds of questions are actually really, really hard questions. I have to say, because I do get very nervous when people come over for dinner, but I think I always did, even before I was Mark Bittman. Right? I just think I'm like so sure that everything's going to go wrong, and then nothing goes wrong. Or sometimes, you know, things are not perfect, and sometimes they're not even that great, but. But, you know, I don't burn the stuff. I don't drop it on the floor. Like, that doesn't happen. On sort of the flip side of that, I always thought it would be annoying to, like, be a dentist and everyone, all your friends would call you being like, my tooth hurts. Like, what should I do? Is it, do you get questions? Do you get friends being like, how do I do that? Like, are you fielding qu- I know people don't talk to you at parties, you know, but before they didn't. You know, are people, like, bothering you that you know? Like- it would happen as much as it used to. I don't know why i really don't it used to happen a lot I like what like, would people ask mark you? Bittman's cooking consulting service <laughs> but um it's because you started charging them no i think it's because i just gave give off this vibe that i don't want to talk to anybody i am not getting that at all <laughs> even, not at all <laughs> even not at parties like even on the phone what you answer the phone, what? Yeah. Oh, that'll do it. This is Mark Pittman. I'm not going to talk to you about cooking. That'll do it. That'll do it. What? What? It's good. Oh, my. Mark Pittman. Mark Pittman, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. That was it? Okay, you big great. Jew. You did great. Hey, 
J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, to the mailbox. Uh, we've got three letters for you, and then we're going to hug Mark Bickman because he's cuddly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is he. Oh, stop him before he leaves. Hey. <laughs> First letter is, hey, Leo, Mark, and Stephanie. My husband and I are big fans of Unorthodox, an issue currently facing our community of Evanston, Illinois. Our high school plans to eliminate its Hebrew language program. Only 21 public high schools in the country offer Hebrew. It's small, and the school administration has explained that it's hard to find a qualified teacher. How can you help? Unorthodox, please tell any certified Hebrew teachers to send their resumes <laughs> to the Eye Center for Israel Education in Northbrook, Illinois, which is helping to identify qualified teachers. Our family, including three young Hebrew speakers and a dog, will welcome a certified teacher with open arms. With appreciation for your show, Shalom, Deborah Hamilton, Evanston, Illinois. That's our public service. Question. Yes. They just can't find a teacher? It's not like they're shutting down the department? The reason they gave Deborah for shutting down the department was we can't find qualified teachers. Oh. I, will, I will travel to Evanston, Illinois. And I, I will teach these people Hebrew. Are you going to teach them in character as Shlomo? Yeah, great. Of course. Maze <laughs> Hebrew. Hello, students. Just Lesson the today is uh, how do we shoot the gun. All right. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I'm really enjoying Unorthodox. There's always something to agree with and almost always something to disagree with. This week's episode is the first time, however, that I felt the need to write in to tell you about it. We love letters that begin that way. During your interview with Phyllis Chesler, she twice referred to a hijab as if it is, in and of itself, a hostile act, not an expression of faith. I don't think it's responsible for you to let comments like this go unexplored and unchallenged. An earnest desire to expose and combat anti-Semitism does not need to prevent us from treating other faith communities with dignity and respect. Inshallah, you will do better in the future. Sincerely, Daphne Lasky. I agree with that letter. I think that's right. I think mm -hmm. Phil is painted with an overly broad brush. Inshallah, we may. Inshallah, we'll do better. Thank you for the letter. Hello, Leo, Mark, and Stephanie. I've already seen some heated debates on the Jap, Jappy topic. This is this is about Noreen Malone's question for us last week about how do we feel about the word Jappy. Hold on, just if I may, for a second. Who here thinks that it's okay for a non-Jewish person to use the word Jappy in conversation? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. One. Just that One guy. One brave no, that gentleman. Was a, that was, a, a, con after the that show, was man. a conversation that we actually heard a lot 
of, we got a lot of letters. A lot of mail. Hello, Leo, Mark, and Stephanie. I've already seen heated debates on the Facebook group on the Jap-Jappy topic, but I thought I'd send my opinion. It seems as though most people focus on the first letter in the acronym, but for me, the meaning came from the last, princess. For me, it wasn't a way to describe Jewish girls. It was a way to describe spoiled girls in my community and the easily identified uniform, code of conduct, and social status that followed. Lauren Goldhirsch. Okay. You know, I think I think we'll talk about this more, obviously. Um, I think we sort of have some ideas brewing about how to address what is clearly like a very third rail thing. I have to say, you know, it's funny. My sister called me the morning that that episode airs and she was like, I disagree with, you know, I had sort of said, you know, I don't care. I'm like, that term does not, that term does not upset me. I, we have come so far that it's not an issue. Do it like, th- that doesn't trigger me. Frenny is cool with Jab. No, she was not. She was like, there's no way in which that scenario is cool and you know it and you probably just were trying to be nice. And I said, and I said, I was like, you know, I've I've thought so much about this term. I've spent so much of my life thinking if other people thought that, like, you know, I've, I've, I've engaged with this for so long that actually I am at a place of peace with it. And she was like, yeah, but no one else is. She sort of said like, that's because of all of this ingrained stuff that, that, that the fact that you actually have a full relationship with this word you and now resolved you resolved it. Yeah, like she's like, you're, yeah, you're evolved on it, but that doesn't mean anyone else is. And I was sort of like, you know, that is interesting. I didn't say that at all in our conversation that I had, that this is- You've done the work. Yeah, that, that, this is something I think about all the time. Like all the time. We are going to spend a lot more, we're actually going to do a special episode, I think, on the question of, is it okay to say Jap? Final letter. This is fabulous. Last week, our Gentile of the Week was Noreen Malone, the fabulous writer from New York Magazine, and we were talking about the name Noreen and how Irish it sounded, and we wondered aloud if there were any Jewish Noreens. Of course, we get a letter on that. Dear J. Crew, I had to write to say that at Camp Ramah in Wisconsin in 1978, <laughs> my bunkmate, Noreen, I will, I will leave her last name out of it, got up each morning and started the morning by saying, fuck, I gotta piss. Yours truly, Robin Dorishow. If that Noreen is out there, we can do this, right? We can do this. Noreen, who was at Camp Ramah, Wisconsin in 1978, who always had to take a piss first thing in the morning and announced it to the whole bunk. Please, please call us. Please call us. You want to talk to you. Also, like, we all had that Noreen in our bunk. That's right. Everyone had that. Some of us might have been that you Noreen. Because in the army, I was that Noreen. At Lefty Quake. I was like, hey, I got two piece. What is this? Pish. That's right. Can we do a Gentile of the Week? Why not? What a Gentile we have. Okay. What a Gentile. Guys, you guys are in for a treat tonight. I think she was raised on a farm. Everyone from Minnesota was raised on a farm. Can you just let me do Minnesota is practically a farm. If you're from Minnesota, you're raised on a farm. And now, here to defend herself, is our Gentile of the Week, Kristen Meinzer. She is the co-host of this amazing podcast. It's called By the Book, and she hosts it with Jalenta Greenberg. In each episode, they take a self-help book, they read it, they live by it for two weeks, and then they meet back up and they discuss it. They, they've read The Secret, they've read Marie Kondo, just like you. It's, it's a great show, and we're so excited to have Kristen with us tonight. Yay! Hey, guys. Hello, is this on? It is on. Yay! Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So excited. So I'm excited. so excited to be here. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so, first off, we'll say, we'll get to the podcast, which, I, as I said, is great. We want to say that we did not have Jolenta Greenberg here tonight. We chose Kristen Meinzer, our, like, Midwestern, her Midwestern foil on the show. Mm-hmm. You have sort of, like, your Jewish, your Jewish host and your non-Jewish host. Like, we don't have that, so thank you. 
for bringing diversity to our ranks. So why are self-help books so therapeutic, so addictive? Why are people so obsessed with reading them, enough so that you guys would make a whole, whole show about it? I think they're uniquely American. They're about our whole identity. We grow up with this history of, it's that Horatio Elger, it's that Ben Franklin, it's that whole myth that in America we can be anything. And I think that's why we love self-help books is because they tap into that ethos. So you guys have read, you've read The Secret, that was I think your first episode, you've read Marie Kondo's life-changing magic, magic tidying, tidying up. up, you've read French Women Don't Get Fat, you've read most recently in season two, Bored and Brilliant. Most of these books are directed at women. And you guys are two women running the show, and, and, and a lot of the readers, we, sorry, the listeners we, you hear from on the show are women as well. Are these, are these all for women? Like, are there men you hear from on the show who are like, uh, thank you for providing a voice? I, I, I do read think, self-help books. I do think that there actually are quite a few books, self-help books, are written by men. And if you think of a lot of the self-help gurus out there, they are men. Author of The Power of Now. Um, what's his name? Tony Robbins. Seven uh, Habits of Highly Effective Yeah, people. Stephen Covey. Uh, there are so many men who write these self-help books. But yes, the majority of people who are reading the self-help books are, in fact, women. And... I see that as a reaction to the fact that women have been left out of traditional health and wellness throughout all of U.S. history, if not world history. Think about all of the times there have been medical tests that have been done where they've done research studies and they're looking for another white man. We need 75 white men between the ages of 25 and 35. How often are women included in these conversations? How recently was it that women were believed to have uteruses floating around our bodies We've been left out of so much of the health and wellness uh, scientific world that it's not surprising that women have turned to an alternate place where maybe they can be taken, if not more seriously, but then at least with a little more compassion. I, I take that very seriously, but on a lighter note, I do have to say, the one time I was in a study... It was in college, and I... White man. I had, run out of mo- I had run out of money for the semester, and I didn't want to ask my parents more. Nimrod Weisselfish. I made... <laughs> he, is, he is in a, a, a group all his own. He's, I made 300 bucks by agreeing to allow them to test an antipsychotic medication on me. And are, you, are you psychotic? The ad that I answered was at, at Yale New Haven Hospital at the, in the psych department. A researcher needed, like, 30... Uh, white men between the ages of 18 and 30 who were not psychotic and we were the control group so I had to lie in what's the long tube they put you in as an MRI I had to lie in it for 12 hours at the halfway point they let me out to have an order from McDonald's and pee what was your order? (laughs) this was before my filet of fish days it was probably uh, it it was probably Big Mac but six hours in let me out the whole time they were running a radioactive tracer in one vein to see, to, so my brain would glow, and an antipsychotic med in the other. So that's just by way of saying I've been there, sister. How much did you make? I'm not sure you want in on those tests. I understand what you're saying, but it was. And it, this is why you don't need self-help books. Totally right. You are totally actualized. In, in experiments. But is there a way in which these books prey on women, and the way in which we're always told be better, do better, look better, eat better? Is there a way in which we're being manipulated by this? Oh, I definitely think there's a component to that too, but. I do think that on the flip side of that, so many people are looking for something to believe in. In some ways, America was founded by a bunch of religious zealot nuts, and we have never completely been able to pull away from that, and so many of us are looking for something to believe in and somebody to tell us what to do. And 
I think that self-help books give that guidance to a lot of people. So here's my question. And yes, a lot of them are horrible. Yeah, by the way. I, I genuinely love them. And, and I love them for this reason. I mean, they're, they're so... They're <laughs> so they're horrible? No, they're so earnest. They just want to make, you know, to try and make life better. You know, they just come with this premise of we have some ideas and maybe, you know, we'll help you through. Why do you think they've gotten such a terrible, you know, rep? Are we just so cynical that we can't see the beauty and just wanting to make life a bit nicer? Oh, I just love that tone of yours. You sound like a Hallmark movie. But I genuinely believe <laughs> But I, um, I think that some of the books are for good reason, criticized heavily, because they are essentially shilling nonsense, and they are being written by charlatans. Okay. For example, let's talk names. a little bit about let's talk well, a little bit about the secret. If the secret will. is, you is said, nefarious. And you said you were embarrassed to be reading it on the subway. Oh, I was mortified. I was out in public reading it, and one bit of tape that did not make it into that episode was I was in a bar at one point reading it. A bar where. <laughs> Before I got married, I used to occasionally sometimes meet men, and I was sitting next to a man, and I, was, I saw him looking over at me, and I was mortified, and then I asked him, and I said, can I record this? Are you staring at me because you are judging me because of the book I'm reading? And it was the secret, and he's like, no, I was just staring at you because you are reading a book in a bar. <laughs> And I, and I don't care what book it is, but you seem kind of weird. And that was all it was. But So the premise of the book is that uh, there is this thing called the law of attraction, which says that we can turn thoughts into things. You just have to believe hard enough in it. That's all you have to do. And... Of course this is malarkey. Of course, you know, you know who was not thinking hard enough, apparently? People in the Holocaust. People with cancer. There are all these people who are apparently not thinking hard enough to turn their thoughts into things. And that's why this book is a bunch of trash. It's a horrible, horrible book. And the idea that we own the tragedies as well as the goodness that happens to us only because we're thinking hard enough about it. The book is filled with stories of people going to bed thinking, I want a car and then the next day they get a car. Someone just gave them a car the next day. Can you freaking believe it? Or, oh my gosh, if I write myself a check for a million dollars, I'm going to be able to cash that check later on the date that I wrote on that check, which, by the way, did not happen to me. I did not get a million dollars in two weeks. I tried really hard to get that million dollars in two weeks. I want to confront you on a, a, less, a book you liked more. Well, you didn't love it, but, but Delenta liked it, which was the... Um, the, the French women don't get fat. Oh. Which, oh wait, I'm sorry. This is, this is where we should break and say, first of all, you should all listen to this podcast. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And second of all, this is probably like your gateway drug into the podcast. You should listen to this episode first, and then the other episodes just flow naturally. But you guys were, you guys were terrifically like, um, thoughtful and, and candid and frank about, what you lo- about your own pasts with eating issues, and also what you liked about the book, and, and your colleague liked it more than you did, as I recall. Oh, yes. Right? Jolenta loved this book. so You hated it, and she I, loved it. But I have to say, like, I'm listening to this whole thing, and both of you are talking, well, I lost a couple pounds, or I didn't lose any weight during this period, or this period, the, the, the kale, not kale. Leeks. Leeks. Oh, my God. Never forget. was very hard. But I'm listening to the whole thing, and I'm thinking, wait a second. Haven't we just spent about five years with... with fat pride activists saying the point is not to care about the two pounds and not once during the episode did you say we should be past all this you know we should be past all this but i have to say that when we're living by the books 
we really do completely follow them blindly and throw ourselves in 100%. We start using the jargon. We dress the way they tell us to. We eat what they tell us to. We say the mantras they tell us to. We go to bed at the time they tell us to. Anything they tell us to do, we do. And you get so immersed in it that sometimes it's very hard to see everything that you should. And I know that for myself, um, you'll know this if you listen to the episode, it really triggered me and put me into a tailspin back into the disordered eating I had when I was a young woman. And I started weighing myself 50, 100 times a day. And it, it was very upsetting. And I was crying. And my husband was begging me not to finish this book. Put down this book. Put down this right, book. Don't do it anymore. And I was committed to finishing it because... The premise of the show is not just to make fun of these books we're reading, but to think about what it means to be human and what it means to try and change ourselves and what all of these books are telling us we can do or what we should do and the reality of it. So I followed it completely and I have to say that, yeah, it totally messed with my And did you hear from other people who had had similar experiences? Because that's a really, that's a popular book where I feel like women will pick oh, that yeah, up all it's the still time. A, it's still a bestseller. It's usually on the top 100 list. And we heard from many, many listeners. Uh, we have a Facebook community page where people started sharing very dark stories about their own disordered eating. We had uh, people writing us voicemails, all of it. And... Um, some of them actually said, even listening to the episode, they had to shut it off because it was making them think too hard about their weight and about weighing themselves and so on. So it was hard for some people to listen to. So if you, I'm curious about what's stuck. So if you right now uh, got like a million, like a check for a million dollars. Oh, I'm going to write a check for, right for, now. For yes. a self-help book. What's the title of your self-help book? Um, what, what are the advice? Yeah, what, what pieces What's are you pulling stuck? for me? What's Better living through podcast listening. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a little quote from my Nana here. My Nana is just, my late Nana, she's no longer with us. She was like my heart and soul, and I loved her to death. And she really taught me how to be happy. And life for us was frequently extremely hard. It was not always very, it, it was frequently very unpleasant. And she said, quoting Abe Lincoln, another one of my heroes, we're all about as happy as we make up our minds to be. And so even when things are really horrible, if we can try to at least look at the good parts of it, it I think life is better that way. It's better if I walk into a room saying, hello, I am so thrilled to be here tonight than it is to walk into a room and be upset about who may look at me the wrong way or am I pretty enough to be here? I'd rather walk into a room hoping that everybody here um, is, you know, I, being happy that everybody is here and I feel so lucky that all of you showed up tonight and I get to talk with you. So I'd rather be happy. Give a big round of applause yes. just for that. And it, it sounds like you like parties more than Mark Bittman does. <laughs> but so, okay, so you have this podcast, you read these books, you go all in. You also have like a totally normal job. You are a very serious person. You are the director of nonfiction programming at Panoply, which is the podcast network. We're actually on this. We're on Panoply. Yes. You, you like run shit, <laughs> but you also are like, I'm channeling this positive. Like you do these sort of, you take on these, these kind of intense sojourns. Do people at work think it's funny? Oh yeah. Like they always know what book, I, they always know something's up. Like everybody knew when I was on French women don't get fat. I was acting like a psychotic person. Um, I won't tell you what book it was that I was recently you reading. You soup? <laughs> That's all I eat for the next 48 hours. Um, there was one book that um, uh, 
we lived by, oh, actually, by the time this episode comes out, everybody will know it already, um, the little book of Hugga. And in that book, you have to have the spirit of Christmas in your heart every day of the year. And I am a fucking Christmas nut. I love Christmas. And I love Christmas in my heart every day of the year. So everybody at work noticed, of course, when I was decorating my desk in October with Christmas decorations. And I had ornaments. And I was playing Christmas music. Also, can I tell you the whole Hugga thing? Like, I am so into that. Oh, my God. I can tell. Look at your sweater. That is... Look at the cord. Look at the cords. Look at these socks. Yes. Already, you actually are. You're naturally hooked. I'm in this You just are. Sweater. I know. Yeah. You're, You're wearing the hooga soccer and everything. Yeah. This is actually a, a fabulous moment for you to ask the question you brought for us. Because as you know, as you know, directing Panoply nonfiction programming, one of the features that makes unorthodox unique is that we give the Gentile of the Week a chance to ask the internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts <laughs> something We that, cannot choose a very rare opportunity that's right, to ask questions. Of us. So what is it about, about Judaism, Jews, the Jewish world, Jewish ethics? What can we answer for you, a, a Gentile? All right. So since we were just talking about Christmas... And since it's that time of the year, the greatest time of the year. Most wonderful. Absolutely. The most wonderful time of the year. Here's a question I've always had. So when I was growing up in Bloomington, Minnesota, um, which is right outside of Minneapolis, there are many, many Jewish people in Minneapolis, but in my suburb, not so many. Not allowed. Not a lot. So Tammy Cohen, for example. She Tammy was my Cohen. Friend growing, up, growing up. And Tammy Cohen, at one point I asked her when I was a little kid, we were over at her house playing, and I asked, where's your Christmas tree? And she said, oh, we don't have a Christmas tree because we're Jewish. And I said, hmm, okay. And then I went home after that and I asked my mom, hey, mom, Tammy doesn't have a Christmas tree because she's Jewish. What's up with that? What's Jewish? My mom said, oh, yeah, they don't do Jesus. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, got it. They don't, they don't believe in Jesus, she said. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Never thought about it again. But then years later, and I still think about it to this day, Tammy Cohen how did she manage to never tell every other kid in Hillcrest Elementary School the whole thing about Santa, which I will not say, the whole Santa thing. It shall not be said. But I'm wondering, you guys on the panel... Well, we should start with Mark, because he had the more traditional upbringing of, like, minority Jews. I knew Gentiles. Yeah, he knew Gentiles. Too, right? Yeah. These two being from Tel Aviv and Great Neck. I, I still don't know any Gentiles. They, they, these two actually never encountered this what problem. What is Christmas? The, the, first, the first thing I should say is that um, my two best friends were Unitarians, so they were already pretty far along the skepticism path. You know, like, they didn't... Like, in fifth grade? In first grade. I mean, they... they <laughs> Someday I'll tell you about Protestants, Stephanie. But these, these liberal Protestants... I have a master's in religious studies that I have do. used zero times, except for right now. You do. And um, so there wasn't... I wasn't, like, around really Jesus-y people in my... None of my close, none of my close ones were really Jesus-y. But I have to say, like... And this is, this is going to get me in some hot water here. Um, I, my friends were also, like, you know, I ran in the smart crowd... And I really feel like even by five or six, like smart kids, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, Zoroastrian, Baha'i, they don't believe in fairy tales. Like, they're past the tooth fairy, Santa. What, like, I'm just going to say how something. How old were you when you Ta- still believed in Santa? I'm going to say something. Tammy Cohen and I met in GATE. That's the Gifted and Talented Education Association. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, so. We're both in our 30s, Mark. <laughs> All right. Ever heard of Center for Talented Youth, Johns Hopkins? Oh, yeah. We took the PSATs in the crib. How old were you when you met Tammy Cohen? Oh, gosh. 
Irish there, so... Oh, um, I, I don't remember not knowing Tammy Cohen. I just don't think you ever really believe... What I'm calling you out on is... Tammy Cohen listened to this podcast? I think by the time you had I have not talked to Tammy Cohen, by the way, since I was single-digit age. But, of course, if you live in a place where there's, like... I was, like, the one Asian in our class. She was the one Jewish person. Poor George McIntyre was the one black kid. I will... for. Ever for the rest of my life until I die. Remember Tammy Cohen and George McIntyre? I, because the three of us were the three people. You were the minorities. I think that there, it's not. I just no. don't think you ever believed no, in Santa Claus no. for being a. Oh my God! I cannot believe you just <laughs> said that. That's what I'm saying. Like, by the time but you I were. I still believe. basically profiling you right now. Oh my God. So think too well of you hold to on, think that on, you ever really on. believed in Santa Claus. Kristen, what was Santa to you growing up? Tell, tell me. The happiest, jolliest, nicest guy there is. And he brings you presents because he is so nice and he likes children who behave themselves. Can I tell you, growing up in Tel Aviv, he was that to me too. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, yeah. Only no one else believed in it because the country of Jews. I was like, why don't we have the nice guy come? All our guys are in uniforms with guns. Like, why not the guy in red with the presents? What's I, wrong with you people? I have to say, no, I don't have an answer to the Santa Claus question. I think there probably is sort of something you're, you're told at one point, like, don't ruin it for the Gentiles. Because, like, again, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but I feel like this whole, like, war on Christmas thing, the Jews love Christmas. Right, we do. No one loves Christmas more than the Jews. Right. We love it. It's amazing. I want it. So yep. what are your Christmas plans? Like, what do you do? So um, I'm a Christmas nut, as I said. So I usually have 60 days of Christmas movies. And every day for 60 days, I watch Christmas movies. I have roughly 150 top movies and I try to rotate them out. Some days I watch several movies, some, some days only one. And I love Christmas so much. Like one of the movies that's very important to me that I'm sure most people in this room have heard of or probably seen is It's a Wonderful Life starring Jimmy Stewart. And um, Never seen it. Tepid applause for and, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes. For, Never yes, seen it. Yes for Jimmy Stewart. Polite, polite golf well, course. Well, it's, it's a horrible sad story of a martyr who gives up his entire dreams for his town. But on the bright side of it, he has this amazing romance with Mary, um, another gal in his town, that is so sweet and funny, and they have such a great chemistry and a sense of humor. And, and um, so my husband, who's from New Zealand, had never seen the movie until he met me, and we watched it together, our first Christmas together, and it, it's got a special place in our hearts. So when we got married last year, he secretly had my wedding ring engraved with one of the lines that George says to Mary in the Aww. movie. I'll lasso the moon for you. Aww. And so even if you don't care about Christmas, please just see it because it's a wonderful romance. Even if it's not a wonderful life, it's a sad, horrible life. Actually. Now, Christian, how do you feel about Love Actually? Oh. oh, so good. Now, that one I've seen. Well, I always like to think the lesson that we can all take away from Love Actually is the only successful relationships are those where a man in power at least 20 years older than a younger woman, That's possibly right. who doesn't speak the same language as her, that he can get hired or fired. Um, yeah, those are the only successful ones. Or, so just or like a nice if your wife ever story. dies, you will always marry Claudia Schiffer. There are a lot of great <laughs> lessons you can so take in a movie. So many lessons, yes. I love uh, Christmas. Kristen Meinzer... Your podcast is fabulous. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's called By the Book. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week.
Finally, some mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov for the week? Uh, let's start with Stephanie. Stephanie, oh, I'm getting a, a mazel tov? Oh, no, do I have to give? Oh, sorry. Do you have a mazel tov? You're really surviving the subway ride. Do you have a mazel tov this week? I do. Okay, so last week I did um, a storytelling show, Long Story Long, and I was pretty nervous about it. It was like, a lo- it's a, a long story. And then I spoke for like 15 minutes and I just wanted to give a mazel tov to Ellie Ryder, who... Um, organizes those events every month and sort of like wrote me into doing it and I I loved it so much I love the it was so fun to be there and to sort of hear these long form stories and to sort of push myself and do it and I really I loved it also I have to say being in a room of people who are like it's not like people who write in are like you were funny on the podcast it's someone laughing at you it's kind of like a live show but better Long story long, because it's terrific. just me. Yeah. <laughs> so Mazel Tov to you him. You like that whole spotlight no, thing? No, I'm just want to. I just want to thank him because he sort of pushed me out of my comfort zone, and I really appreciate it. Ellie Ryder is a great Inshallah. live storytelling director. Yeah, he's great. I've been through the Ellie Ryder treatment as well. I couldn't agree more. Leah Leibowitz. Uh, so in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equal, you know, powers. One is the NYPD, and the other is my wife, Lisa Ann Sandell, uh, who this <laughs> this afternoon uh, actually fought the law and won in traffic court. I love you. Wow. Mazel Tov. I have two Mazel Tovs. A very good friend of mine uh, is having a wonderful experience with her son being enrolled uh, at the New York Child Learning Institute, a uh, school that uh, teaches children with autism as well as others. It's in College Point, Queens, and we need to give a big Mazel Tov to the amazing teachers uh, at the Child Learning Institute. Uh, cannot let us go this week without giving a Mazel Tov. This was a request from a listener. This Mazel Tov, uh, your wife wrote in, Mr. Edward Nelson, to ask that we give you a Mazel Tov on your retirement from your job as an attorney with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. After 37 years of working that patent and trademark beat on behalf of the American people, you've earned it. At your retirement party, your boss, Mary Sparrow, not a Jew, read a beautiful poem that ended with this couplet. In the land of retirement, may you happily roam, and so in parting, we wish you shalom. Edward Nelson, may the golf course of life that awaits you, the tennis courts, the HBO subscription, the cooking lesson, the HelloFresh delivery system, whatever you occupy your retirement with, the grandchildren, may it treat you well, and may you have great mazel the whole time. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com and today live at Congregation Road of Sholem on the Upper West Side, the best reformed temple near Columbus Avenue in Manhattan. Please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Are we still doing the Instagram thing? Is that still? Oh, we are. It's still happening. Uh, Join our Facebook group. Go to Tablet's Facebook page. Join in. We are over 1,200 people strong already. Uh, Go to the Facebook group and then click on the unorthodox group. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes, who is in the audience this evening. uh, Giving us giving us great amounts of hazak. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem. We have gotten email about how much you love the music for us, so check them out at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Sam Reinstein of Cole Israel in Crown Heights and Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of Northwood and Pinner in the United Kingdom. If you think your rabbi should be the Rabbinic Supervisor of the Week, write to me at Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We record at Argo Studios, which, if it were Jewish, would become a member of Road of Sholem on the Upper West Side. We're proud to be the part, we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>